Well, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am really excited to get to speak with you guys and share a sermon that the campus pastors and the teaching team developed. And we're going to dive into a book called Esther, and it's found in the Old Testament. I love books in the Old Testament and stories out of that because sometimes it's a while before we get back into those stories and it takes us, it takes us a little bit to kind of understand. But um, here's the truth. Everything that's written in the Bible has application to our spiritual lives, to our spiritual health. And so hopefully we can dive in and talk about an entire book today and pull a couple of things out of there uh, that will be relevant to us and to the decisions that we actually make every day. Because this woman who was alive a long, 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 long time ago in a different culture, in a different era, with different challenges is very, very similar to you and to me. And so uh, I'm going to walk you through that book really quickly, talk about some of the history of that, and then dive into the points that we have. If you grab the notes, uh, then we'll work off of those too. So let me just pray so that I can kind of uh, settle my heart and my mind. But as I pray, will you guys uh, pray also that your heart and your mind would be open to maybe one or two spiritual truths that you could walk out of here today with that... uh, will change you in a way that uh, really is a lasting change, that we don't just come to church today and walk away and go throughout our day and our week, but join with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, God, I want to proclaim your word and your truth. God, so anything that's inside of me that you don't want um, to be proclaimed, God, I just ask that you would filter those things out Let your message, let your love, let your heart come through your word today. God, we open up our hearts and our minds. We say, Holy Spirit, have your way in this message and in this time today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Esther's a book that maybe we're familiar with, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. Uh, It's talked about if you have any Jewish heritage in you, uh, then you will have celebrated what uh, is called Purim, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But very succinctly, here's the story. The the Israelites are in exile, and they are are, uh, controlled by the Persian Empire at this time. And there's a king named Xerxes who disposed of his queen Vashti and then essentially held a beauty contest and Esther a Jewish uh, young woman wins a beauty contest and becomes the next queen she didn't necessarily know why she was put in that position um, but it was about five years later that there was uh, something that happened in that kingdom where a bad man named Haman who was second in control of the whole Persian empire uh, basically tricked the king into writing an edict to have all of the Jews annihilated. So there was a man named Mordecai. Mordecai was actually Esther's cousin, but uh, he was older than her and had adopted her as his daughter once Esther's parents had passed away. And so Mordecai was uh, one of the officials and people that was kind of in the palace area. And and he uh, hears about this edict. And so he tears his clothes and he, uh, and he puts ashes on his head and he goes into uh, a time of mourning. And that catches the attention of the queen, Esther, who is actually his adopted daughter. And 
and she wonders, okay, Mordecai, why are you doing this? Why are you behaving this way? And she sends some people to talk to him and, and he ends up giving those people a copy of the edict and it's brought into the palace and that's the first time that Queen Esther finds out that her people, including her adopted dad, all of the Jews in the Persian Empire are, go- are going to be annihilated. And so through some discussion, Mordecai convinces Esther, I think that you were set up as queen for such a time as this. You guys have heard that verse, for such a time as this. And so he convinces her that uh, she should go in front of the king, which when she does, anybody who does that who's not been called to come into the presence of the king could be killed. So she's risking her life, but she decides to do it. She prays and fasts. She has all of the Jews in the empire pray and fast for her. She goes in and she, through a series of banquets, she... um, lets the king know that Haman is actually a bad man and not to be trusted and then gets the uh, decree, not reversed because once a king says something, it stands, but she got him to write a second decree that basically allowed the Jews to fend for themselves, to defend themselves when that uh, day came where they were supposed to be annihilated. Does that strike any memory in in your minds of like, okay, I think I remember maybe some people in this room are like, oh boy, I I don't know if I've been told any of that. So we'll go into some of the details and uh, hopefully it'll make... It'll make sense. But uh, here's one of the things. If you guys have your Bible and you want to turn to the table of contents, do this really quickly. I want you guys to look at the order of the books in the Bible. Now, um, if we were to quiz this room, we would probably do worse than the kids downstairs as far as reciting the books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? And so, but here's, here's the deal. When we read a story like Esther, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, that's a good story. I have no idea when that happened or how that compares and contrasts to the books that I just read. Maybe you're reading your way through the Old Testament in a year or something like that and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, when did this happen? Okay, so if you're looking at the table of contents, I want you to understand these things, okay? Daniel which we're familiar with, with the lion's den and Pastor John and Pastor DJ have mentioned Daniel in the past. Daniel comes right before Esther. Then we have Esther and then we have two characters that we're familiar with too towards the end of the, New, towards the, end of the Old Testament and that is Ezra and Nehemiah. So very quickly that'll put you guys uh, in, in place if we, if we think of it this way that Daniel and everything happened here And now on the scene comes Esther. And then after this story that we're going to get through, Ezra, Nehemiah. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's where we are. And then in space and time, we are in the Middle East. We are in Iran, Iraq. uh, And the Persian Empire is the biggest empire that the world has ever seen. It stretches from India all the way to Ethiopia. You're like, I need a map. I don't even understand that. If you take out the Arabian, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, then it stretches kind of like a, um, 
a horseshoe from India all the way to Ethiopia, inclusive of Egypt. So these guys are super, super powerful. You guys know that Israel, uh, they were a free and independent nation, had kings, but then uh, the ten tribes rebelled against Judah and Benjamin, and so, the, so Israel divided. Those ten tribes, they got attacked by Assyria, and in 722 they were hauled off. 722 BC, they were hauled off and they were basically scattered to the wind. They became no more. They just, the way that the Assyrian Empire uh, uh, took their captives was they, they conquered a land and then they took their people and just spread them throughout the empire. And they didn't let them settle together because they didn't want anybody to rebel, right? So the Assyrians did that. And then you guys know the next empire that came in, conquered the Assyrians, was Babylon. There's a famous king that we know about in the Bible, especially from the stories of Daniel. And the king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. You guys are so much better than Saturday night. That is for sure. All right. So Nebuchadnezzar comes. And then Nebuchadnezzar later on lays siege to Jerusalem and takes Judah and Benjamin. And they haul them off and they're captive. But Babylon doesn't disperse them. They allow them to still gather. And so that's why uh, the tribe of Judah kept its identity. And so they were, they were able to stay there. But both Assyria and Babylon, they forced the Israelites and the other captive nations to worship and honor the gods of Babylon and Assyria. And so you guys know that's why uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into uh, the fiery furnace. Um, all of those things. The Jews were in a culture where they were forced to honor other gods. Otherwise, their life was at risk. So Babylon um, had, had a time of peace and prosperity, but eventually a man named Cyrus raised up and he created this Persian empire and he came and he conquered the Medes and then eventually he, uh, he conquered Babylon. And he destroyed Babylon and so he set up his capital in the city of Susa. And that's where we find ourselves today with Esther. She lives in this city named Susa and once she becomes queen, she lives in a palace that is absolutely huge. Our property here is about two acres. The size of the palace that she lived in was two and a half acres. So if you took from this road to Pierce to that hotel and to that hotel and just said, hey, let's build a huge, gigantic palace, that's where they were living. So that kind of gives you an example of what was happening in this story. And Mordecai, uh, her adopted dad, was uh, living in that same city and would have interactions in and outside of the palace grounds. So... Esther is a young woman growing up in a culture that has some freedom, but yet she's in exile. Mordecai, the same sort of way. He has a job, he has a position, he has responsibilities. But the culture is dictating to him sometimes what he can and cannot do. So it was during this time that Haman, the second in command, uh, below King Xerxes is walking in and out of the palace grounds and wherever he passed everybody was supposed to bow down to him and Mordecai just felt in his heart I, I can't do that that would be putting another god onto that same list and, and I don't bow down or worship or serve other gods and so I can't do that 
So he wouldn't bow, but everybody else would get down as Haman would march through either on his horse or just walking through. And eventually somebody asked, why aren't you doing this? And he just didn't even answer. At first, he gave no answer. And then after Haman went back and forth a couple of times, those people that were bowing down and probably pulling on his robe, hey, come on, you're supposed to do this. He eventually said, I can't do this. I'm a Jew. I'm supposed to only worship the one true God. I can't do this. That's when that news got back to Haman. And Haman tricks the king into writing that edict. And because of one man's actions, a whole nation is put at risk. And it wasn't one man's righteous actions that put that nation at risk. So we're going to walk our way through this and pull out some points that we can use. Like I said, every story in the Bible, you can probably insert yourself into those pages, find a character that you enjoy studying or hearing about, and then imagine if you had to make those very same decisions. So maybe today some of you guys will pick Esther, some of you will pick Mordecai, some of you will pick just an average random Jew living in the Persian Empire at that time, and just insert yourself into that story and say, wow, how would I respond if this was the case? Now, the thing about the book of Esther is it's one of the most loved books of the Bible by the Jewish people. They actually have a a saying that is this, that if the world were to crumble and fall apart, there would be six things that remained. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the book of Esther. So that makes you realize they love this book. Now the end of the story is this, that the edict that Mordecai sent out after Esther uh, convinced the king that Haman was actually a bad man and the king had Haman killed and then they had to send out that, that new edict for the Jews to defend themselves. The Jews did defend themselves and they actually killed the people who came against them. The Jews survived. A people group was completely saved and because of that, they created a celebration. The following year and every year after that, they celebrate a feast and it's called Purim. And in this feast, the, the way that we could describe it as American Christians is if, if you can think of what you do on Thanksgiving, think of what you do on Christmas, and think of what, uh, maybe not you, but maybe more crazy people that you know do on New Year's Eve. Combine all of those into one holiday, and you have the favorite holiday of the Jewish people. They love it. There's a phrase that they say uh, because there is absolutely no inhibition when it comes to drinking alcohol during Purim for the Jewish people. And the phrase is this, you can get so drunk that you can't tell the difference between Mordecai and Haman. Wow. Okay, here's the deal. If we were to start a religion today, And we were going to write a Bible and put all these amazing stories about righteousness and godliness and the way to uh, live the one true pathway uh, to finding God. Guess what we would do? We would write it like American Puritans and whitewash clean everything that's kind of PG-13 out of the Bible. But if you read this book, if you read a couple other books in the Bible, you recognize, wow, there's some stuff in here that makes me realize 
These are real people. Come on, right? We make mistakes. We're not perfect. And here's the deal. So are they. These were real people. If we lived back then, you might have been friends with Esther. You might have grown up with Mordecai. You might have known all of these people that do these same things. And so if we stand up here or come to church and think that, hey, we've got everything figured out, we're not even being true to the word, right? So let's dive into this and figure out uh, how we can learn from this. The first, uh, the first point we have, well, the, the five points that we're going to do. Who, what, when, where, why. These are questions that we've got to ask if we're going to become influencers for the kingdom of God. So who, what, when, where, why. We've got to ask ourselves who, and that has everything to do with our identity. We've got to ask God, who have you created me to be? Now, here's what I know about our culture. It's loud. It's shallow. It's pretty obnoxious. Um, it's pretty demanding of a position or a stance or a response to certain issues. Right? Um, more than ever before, we all have a platform, we all have a voice, and we think that the world is asking of us, what is our opinion on everything? If we haven't made a response to the refugee situation in Eastern Europe right now, we're already behind, right? Some of you guys are like, what is going on? In, right? But that's what I'm talking about. The, the events that happened yesterday de- demand a response yesterday. We don't even give ourselves time to think and all of a sudden there's two or three paragraphs on Facebook that can never be erased. And we divide ourselves by our position without even thinking about it. Now the interesting thing is, is that when Esther was going through this beauty contest, Mordecai told her not to reveal her identity. You'll see in Esther chapter 2 verse 10. It says this, Esther did not reveal her ethnic background or her birthplace because Mordecai had ordered her not to. Okay, but this is the same guy who later on in the story reveals his identity. Isn't that interesting? He reveals his identity in a certain situation, but tells Esther to not reveal her identity in a certain situation. Now, um... Some of us feel like we have to announce our Christianity or our religion right when we walk into the room. That we need to make a stance so that people know where we stand. Otherwise, people would get confused or we're not uh, being a good evangelist if we're kind of living in this gray area and not telling people what we believe. But here's a situation where when Esther didn't reveal her identity, it actually allowed her to get to a higher level. Because here's what she could have done. She could have said from the very beginning, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Jew, I can't do that. You know, she went through six months of bathing treatments. And then after that, six months of oil treatments. But you know what the problem is in all of that? Is it probably messed up uh, her habits with the Jewish calendar. There were probably a couple of times where the Sabbath fell on a certain day and she was having to do certain activities that her Jewish customs didn't really allow her to do that. And so she could have easily said right from the get-go, oh, uh, sorry, I can't do that, I'm a Jew. Guess what? She doesn't win the beauty contest. 
or worse, she gets in trouble because she's uh, not obeying the systems and the rules that she's placed into. So Mordecai, having wisdom, knew that and said, hey, just settle down, just do this. Maybe God is positioning you for something. Okay? Well, Evan, that's Esther, and that's one particular story, so I don't know if that completely relates to me. Do you have any other examples uh, for when uh, people haven't shared their identity? Yeah, I do, Um, and his name is Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus gets arrested, and he gets brought in front of the high priest, and the high priest asks him, essentially, are are you God? And are you the king of kings? And he says, "It's, it's, it's as you say, you've said it. He gets brought in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, hey, I'm being told that you're the king of kings. That would make you a king above me as king. Or, is that true? And he said, you've said it. It is true. That is I. Then Pilate sends him over to Herod, and Herod is asking him the same things, and guess what Jesus does? Nothing. Completely silent. Doesn't reveal his identity to Herod. Herod wanted him to do miracles. It says Herod was excited to have Jesus in his presence because he had heard about Jesus and now it was his opportunity to to see some miracles. And in front of that man, Jesus didn't reveal his identity. And then after that, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, we know that the disciples are kind of fearing for their lives and two of them actually are leaving Jerusalem and they're on the way to a city called Emmaus and all of a sudden Jesus walks up behind them says, can I join you for this journey, and does so. And during that process, Jesus, them not knowing it, talks to them about all of the Old Testament, brings them up to that point in history. Those two disciples, it says, says, our hearts were burning inside of us. They stopped to have dinner. And when Jesus broke the bread, all of a sudden the two disciples were like, it's Jesus! So why didn't he just put his arms around them and say, hey, everything's going to be okay? Because there's a time and a place for that. And sometimes us revealing our identity right at the beginning, letting people know our belief in Christ, maybe it's not the best. So I don't think you have to put a Holy Spirit dove on the bottom of your resume. You know, a charismatic flame on your email, like, hey, just to let you know I'm one of those crazy Christians, right? Because sometimes it's better for you to enter culture, enter your uh, corporation, your business, your family, maybe extended family even, and all of a sudden, just because we are loving our neighbor as ourselves, people understand Wow, there's something different. There's something unique about them. And if you announce your identity as a Christian, guess what? There's already preconceived labels because there's a lot of Christians out there. Uh, Boy, I get so mad because they're representing me. And I'm like, wow, don't, please don't do that. Please, please don't do that because you're going to make everybody think that all of us are like you, right? Full of hate full of opinions, full of poster boards with, with magic markers that say the most dreadful things to people, right? In protest. So maybe if we just live a unique lifestyle, people will ask us about that. All right, point number two, what? This is about our calling. What are the tools you've given me to influence? So 
Esther chapter 2 again, verse 17 says this. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other young women. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Here's the truth. In this book, it says of Esther, favor five times. She had favor five times in this book. So as you're trying to figure out Okay, God, you've created me this certain way. I do have these certain beliefs. Now what do you want me to do with them? What am I called to do? Or what am I called to be? I think a glimpse into what you are called to do and what you're called to be is found when we go throughout our day, navigate the certain things that we have to do day after day, week after week, month after month. When we find favor with somebody else, Press into it. Because I think favor is kind of an unlocked door into maybe the next step, the next answer. It releases um, a next stage of what maybe you're supposed to do. Don't ignore favor, but press into it. And then here's the deal. If we go into the details of the story, and you guys are free to read this, obviously, on your own time, um, but it conveys that Esther was a beautiful woman. And she won that beauty contest. She became queen because of her beauty. But here's what I know about calling, is that everyone in this room is unique. There's not one person the same. Some of us are similar and we have shared likes and shared dislikes. But what God God has called you to do and what God has called you to be is unique to you. And that calling is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. When you walk in your calling, when you're doing what you're supposed to do, it is attractive, it opens doors, and it is enthralling to our Heavenly Father. If you don't believe that, read the book Song of Songs. Talk about PG-13. Okay? This is a book that if you understand what it is, it is our Heavenly Father writing about how much He loves us. And it goes down to the very details of this part and this part and this piece and that piece. And if you understand that, you know that every single uniqueness of you, God is passionately in love with that aspect of you. So if you are called to be an evangelist, then do that and be that. If you're called to be a teacher, God loves that and be unique in that calling. If you're called to be a mom, then be a mom because that calling is absolutely beautiful. Right? God loves it when those people are put in that position, when we say yes to the thing that God has called us to do, He loves it. He dances over us, it says. Point three, when. Who, what, when. Timing. When should I speak or when should I keep silent? How can I cooperate with God's timetable? Esther chapter 4 says this, If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Here's my question. Do you have someone in your life 
that opens up your eyes to the timing of God in your life? Do you have a Mordecai in your life that says, whoa, wait a minute, I totally get it. God's put you in that classroom for this kid. Do you see this? This is awesome. I know this kid is driving you nuts and he's got all sorts of issues and all that. But if you step back and you go, wow, he could have been in any other classroom, but he's in your classroom. And for such a time as this, you get to be his teacher. For nine months, you get to pour into him and change him where another teacher maybe would have just pushed him to the side or kept sending him to the principal's office. You get to speak life over him. You get to pray for him every night. Does, does that make sense? Translate that to your office, to your cubicle, to your task, to your route, to whatever it is. Do you have a Mordecai that just maybe every once in a while goes, oh my goodness, can you believe that? That account that you have that you get to service? Nobody else has access to those people except for you. And you get to go in there and you get to prayer walk through their whole building. I bet nobody else in all of Denver gets to do this. But you get to do it for such a time as this. And Mordecai in that verse, he, he basically says, Hey, God's going to accomplish this whether you do this or not. I have hope. So maybe there's tasks that we haven't pushed into the favor of God in our life. We've ignored it and missed an opportunity. And I think sometimes we miss those opportunities because we don't have a Mordecai in our life. On the flip side, can we be a Mordecai for somebody else? Right? Timing, though. When do you speak? When... Do you hold your peace? I think purpose and maturity lead to timing, right? You guys have all uh, encountered this. We will all encounter this on the patio after church. Here's an example. You'll be in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden their kids or my kids or your kids or somebody else's kids will come running up and pull on the pant leg and daddy, 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 daddy. And they will say daddy 15,000 times, <laughs> right? Because they don't understand timing of a conversation, right? Sometimes Christians don't understand timing of a cultural conversation. And we're just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. God hates you, God hates you, God hates you. What? Wow, you sound like my two-year-old, right? Timing has everything to do with maturity and purpose. If we understand God's purpose we understand the timing and direction of appropriate conversations. And as we mature in understanding that purpose, we'll understand timing. Point number four, where? Placement. Who, what, when, where? Where have you purposely placed me? This is a longer section of verses, so let me read through this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. 
I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther dressed up in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace, facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom, facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she won his approval, or she gained favor from him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Placement. Where are you? Where has God placed you? In all of these things, he's called you to be unique. He's given you a specific calling. There's timing that we need to understand, but there's also the placement. Here's the deal. Esther was in exile. We have to remember that still. That her people were in exile. Cyrus, the first king of the Persian Empire, had given freedom to the Jews. They could go back and they could uh, go live in that Palestine area. Some of them were already even starting to rebuild the temple at that time. Esther may have been one who wanted to go back to her homeland. Mordecai as well. But they were stuck all the way in that area of Iraq and it would have taken time and money to get all the way over there. So maybe she was actually somebody who was stuck. A lot of those Jews probably felt stuck. Yeah, there was some freedom. Yeah, there was some prosperity but they were captives they were displaced people maybe some of you in this room feel like boy this just just hasn't worked out like I thought you know a few years ago I wouldn't have ever put myself in this area or this placement or this position or whatever and maybe you feel like man life just isn't going very well but God has a purpose in the placement. You know that in Acts chapter 17, it's verse 26 in a paraphrase, it basically says, this is Paul standing uh, in Athens and he's proclaiming to people, he said, about the unknown God that they worship. He said, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. I know who it is. And he's actually placed you in the very time and place, even the exact place that you should live so that you would reach out for him and perhaps touch him even though he's not far from each one of us. Right? Placement. Even in exile, God can use a Mordecai. Maybe some of you guys feel like you're in the palace. Everything's been good. You've made a couple of great decisions and you're doing very well right now. Maybe, just maybe, you're in the position that you are, the placement that you are, because God wants to use you in that place to uh, affect radical change. So whether you're in the exile or in the palace, choose to be faithful. Esther fasted. She fasted for three days. She had all the people in Susa fast and pray for her for three days. And in that position, she went before the king. So she went before the king in a position of weakness. If you've ever fasted for three days, you know that you can kind of be shaky, you're weak. It's not like you want to go run a race. It's not like you want to go uh, have an intense interview in, in that moment, right? But she knew something that Paul knew, and he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians. He said, when I am weak, then I am strong, right? We need to learn how to operate in our weaknesses, relying on the power of God.
All right, see if I can get through this. Give me just a couple more minutes. Why, glory? Why does my influence really matter? So to close out this story, let's read these verses. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. You never know the extent of your influence. See, sometimes we give up on faithfulness because we don't see um, any results. God, I've been faithful and it's cost me. My faithfulness sometimes positions me to be overlooked, to be set aside, especially in the corporate world because you're not doing things that that some of your other co-workers are doing. You're getting left behind. Sure, you could do some of those things and it could position you uh, for greater success, but, but you're looking for favor to bring you promotion. You're not looking for deceit to bring you promotion, right? So you, you're being faithful. You're being faithful. You're being faithful and you're not seeing any results. You know what? Obviously Esther got to see the result that she saved the Jews of the Persian Empire, the known world. She actually did something that was full of results. But you know what she didn't know at that time? That her faithfulness was positioning other people for godliness and powerful results. Because I mentioned at the beginning that if you took out the books of the Bible and you put them actually in chronological order, we had Daniel, Esther, and then I said... Ezra, Nehemiah, right? You know that 13 years after this took place, Ezra was allowed to go back to Jerusalem and help them continue to build the temple. Do you think possibly it was because of the influence of Esther that she did that? By that time, King Xerxes was dead, but Esther was still the queen mother. Her stepson was Artaxerxes, who allowed Nehemiah to go back and do that. So I think sometimes we look at faithfulness and we see, we say, well, God, what about, what about this? What about that? What about th- these results? And God's gone, boy, if you could just hold on in 13 years, the world's going to be forever changed because of that. And then in 30 years, cumulatively, The city of God will have walls built around it. And they'll have autonomy by then. And they'll be able to protect themselves. And out of that will come a Savior that the world desperately needs. Right? Because what is my faithfulness producing in a ten-year-old that I can't see today or tomorrow? Hold on and press in because we are changing the world. We are. Esther was a type of Christ. She stood in intercession for a people. She saved a people just like Christ would for us. 
on the cross. We find ourselves within this narrative. Let me read a couple of things and I think we'll find ourselves in this. The enemy of your soul has declared a sentence of death and fear. Haman wrote a sentence of death and fear and it made it all the way across the known world. The Jews felt that oppression and they thought, we're all going to die, there's nothing that we can do. But a decree of freedom has been spoken over your life. But you're going to have to fight for it. Just like those Jews did, they got that second decree and they were told, huddle together, defend yourselves, and fight for the freedom that's already been declared. The enemy has been defeated and we have one who intercedes on our behalf. So here's three options. Some of you need to believe in the decree of that freedom. Some of you need to fight for that freedom. And notice it's done in community. Some of you need to find a small group or a friend, somebody here that is going to tell you, remind you, hey, just because you're free doesn't mean you don't have to fight. And some of you have been called to carry the decree of freedom, announcing it to others. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we praise you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for our life. God, we thank you for the power of your word, the relevant testimony that you've given to us, God. God, help us to know when we're supposed to declare who we are in you and help us to know when we're supposed to be silent and wait for you to position us further. God, we give you praise. We give you glory. God, for anybody who's in this room that maybe hasn't understood our freedom that you've given to us, God, right now, I just ask that they would understand that you truly have set us free. That there was nothing that was special or unique about those Jewish people other than the fact that you loved them and cared for them and decided to protect them and set them free. And so, God, we're so grateful for salvation not caused by any of our own works or righteousness, but because of your sacrifice. God, give us the boldness to carry that decree of freedom to the far reaches of our influence. But God, more than anything, help us to be faithful. Whether we feel like we're in exile or we feel like we're living in a palace, God, I ask that you would help us to be faithful. God, we love you. We praise you.